Hello, you're welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from OnShot.net. A reaction to the great principle, resignation. This week, an article was published in the Irish Times called The Great Resignation, which profiled two primary school principals that stepped away from the job, one back to teaching and one to early retirement. These two principals weren't just any principals though, both of them were highly respected and highly involved nationally in leadership. Both of them served on the Irish Primary Principals National Council for several years, trying their best to represent their colleagues as more and more was piled onto the desk of school principals over the last number of years. In this episode, I'm going to examine bits of the Irish Times article, link it to a couple of studies from some principals groups, and finally, what I would do to stop the great resignation of principals if I were the Minister for Education. Hello, hello, this is Simon Lewis from OnShaw.net with If I Were the Minister for Education, a weekly podcast where I look at the world of primary education and wonder what I would do if I were the Minister for Education. You can subscribe to this podcast on any of your favourite podcasting apps and please tell your teacher friends or anyone else who might be interested in primary education to subscribe too. Now, I am nearly sick of starting episodes of this podcast in almost the same way. But please bear with me because I think it needs reminding and it really sets, I suppose, this episode up in a bit of context. I mean, as many of you know, over the last decade or so, kind of a new, I would say, a new fashion began where everyone dumped society's problems onto schools. It seemed to be a thing to do, and possibly not just in the last decade, but more so in the last decade. I mean, even this week, the Green Party are now calling for schools to teach young people how to breastfeed, which, in fairness up until now, might have been the expertise of a nurse who is qualified and Actually, you know, even more so, not just any nurse, specifically a lactation specialist nurse. Now, I don't know many teachers that are lactation specialists, but these are the types of calls that are coming from political parties, from interest groups and so on, trying to get teachers to be experts in absolutely everything. I mean, every year there's calls for schools to teach cooking, teach driving sometimes. And I even remember during the Celtic Tiger, Golf was being mentioned (laughs) for some reason. Really, look it up. It actually happened. And different interest groups basically often want schools to teach children whatever their interest might be. And in many cases, we've taken that on. And sometimes that's rightly, sometimes that's you know, bizarrely, as uh, are those examples. But some of the examples are we've ta- of that we've taken on that weren't necessarily around, uh, about, uh, certainly 20 years ago. There's drug awareness programs, internet safety, sex education, water safety. Dare I say it, in most schools, we've even taken on the, uh, the, 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 the job of being missionaries for the Catholic Church because society couldn't be bothered bringing their own children to church services. And given that the vast majority of schools don't have kitchens or cars, we've managed to resist some of those things. Um, We also lack driving ranges, by the way. (laughs) Jeez, a huge number of schools don't even have a patch of grass for the kids to kick a ball on, never mind a driving range to teach golf. Anyway, as well as that, a lot of the education agencies realised that they could also 
pin a load of their jobs onto schools. And the inspectors, for example, didn't fancy probating newly qualified teachers anymore. So that job was given to schools and Drihid was born. The educational welfare officers used to chase down families who didn't send their children to school for more than 20 days. Now schools have to do all the chasing and put in interventions to help the child stay in school. The National Educational Psychology School Service also used to screen and assess children and recommend services for children. Nowadays, most of that work falls onto schools. And back in the day, a CINO's job, that's the CINO is the special educational needs organiser who works for the NCSE, was to allocate SNAs and learning support hours to children. These days, that also falls onto the school with the dwindling hours and numbers. Back in the day, if a child needed occupational therapy or speech and language therapy, this would be done by a qualified speech and language therapist or occupational therapist. Now again, this is being passed on to schools and is mainly done these days by SNAs out of goodwill while children wait on waiting lists for several years. And I could go on and on and on. I've been a primary principal for almost 15 years now, so I feel reasonably qualified to talk to you today about the job and why I think this great resignation is happening. But before I do, I kind of want to tell you a little story. Now, this is one of those stories, uh, kind of Grandpa Simpson stories, because it kind of goes nowhere and it's very disappointing because I can't really tell you very much about the characters involved. Um, But if you're a principal listening to this, you'll probably experience this story anyway. The reason I'm not telling you who the characters are is because I don't want to, you know, name anyone. I try to avoid giving examples of my own experience. But for those of you who aren't principals, as I said, I I, I hope it's not going to take much away from the story. Um, I don't want to identify anyone, but ultimately, look, it could be any agency that I'm referring to, any agency that works with schools, uh, basically like the ones I mentioned before. So let's begin this disappointing, characterless story and we'll give it a go. I had a conversation with an agency, not telling you what agency it was. So there's your first disappointment. Now, it might have been one of the, the one of the above ones, or it might not have been. In any case, the person belonging to this agency was telling me that they weren't able to give me the level of service that we needed in our school. And instead, and every principal will now be familiar with this mantra, it was up to me to decide where the greatest needs were in the school. Now, I imagine the people that say this know that this really annoys principals, and I was no exception. However, when I get anno- when I got annoyed, and I did get annoyed, the person said, "But the thing is, you know, we want we what we want to do now is to empower principals to make professional judgments on who they prioritize." Now, notice the choice of language, empower. Now. Some are not thinking very much and many people don't think very much. They might hear this and go, ah, that's nice. We're going to empower principals to be autonomous and make decisions. You know, everyone wants to be empowered, don't they? We're always talking about empowerment, empowering pupils to be resilient, empowering staff to take leadership roles in the school. We all do it, don't we? We all do it and we all say it and we all, you know, well, we don't say it, we hear it. Um, But think of it, think about it a little bit more and the reality is that empowering me, the idea of empowering me, meant that I was being given this poison chalice, for want of a better cliche. And the poison chalice was actually not for me to make positive choices or make 
uh, or, 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 you know, or, or make a good choice. This was for me, really in reality, it wasn't for me to tell a group of children they were, were getting support. The poison chalice really was empowering me that one group of children would be getting support, but there'd be a whole bunch of children that weren't. So I was being empowered to disappoint um, a group of parents and families and children <laughs> based on my opinion, basically. And let, let's face it, we can bandy about with Plumasi titles like professional opinion or professional judgment, but at the end of the day, my opinion. So I'm being empowered to, <laughs> to, essentially, to, to essentially screw over a bunch of kids who need help because with, with my opinion. And yes, I'm being empowered to use my feelings to make potentially life-changing decisions on a child's future. That's what I'm being empowered to do. It's like saying to a doctor with 10 patients, all of whom have life-threatening conditions, to make a professional judgment on who they should operate on with the hope that some of them will just get better naturally. And this is the issue with education. I mean, and I, 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 I know I've whisked over that last sentence, but it is the same thing. Is if you've got 10 people who are feeling very sick, some of them would get better naturally, but we don't know who they are. We, we trust that a doctor might be... Do you think a doctor is going to make a professional judgment on that? No. Like, they, they couldn't possibly make a professional judgment because you don't know how um, life is going to go. I mean, they may get an extra disease that might finish them off if they don't get treatment. They, look, essentially, they'd all get treatment because it's life or death. But the thing is, and this is the issue with education, because children don't die because they aren't getting an education, I mean, literally die, it's very easy to simply not give them the resources they need to succeed in school and therefore in life. And going back to that doctor, if he decided to pick six patients and of the four that he didn't pick, one died, I wonder what people would make of his professional judgment then. And you can be absolutely guaranteed he'd be kicked off the medical council. That's what would happen. So thank you for empowering me, but no thank you. I don't want to be empowered to make decisions like that. I'm passing that one back up the line. You know, that's, I suppose, what I did. Um, however, while I might have maybe won that particular battle. There are so many battles that I'm not winning and no principal is winning. I mean, the new Irish exemption cert, uh, curricula, uh, circular came out and I spoke about this last week in the live poetry reading. They've added a piece where a principal can use his or her professional judgment on whether a child can be exempt from Irish under very, very vague headings. And this empowerment, you know, another word for empowerment seems to be called autonomy. And while many schools cherish their autonomy, autonomy can go too far and it can become completely irresponsible. And I would argue this Irish exemption, this idea of picking children who get supports and who don't, is when autonomy becomes irresponsible. I mean, I'll give you some examples that aren't necessarily as extreme. SSE, for example, is another autonomy that's been given to schools in a way. So Schools now have the choice to choose areas they want to develop under this now defunct and meaningless framework, which was first introduced as a non-autonomous scheme until the government basically forgot why they had it there in the first place. Essentially, it was brought in because there was this, it was, it was an absolute extreme reaction to a blip when the uh, Ireland's literacy scores went slightly down internationally and all of a sudden we had this SSE and literacy and numeracy framework that came in, which was absolutely an over-the-top and 
and unnecessary um, reaction uh, because essentially it was a blip. We went straight back up to where we were before this intervention came in, but essentially we're stuck with this new initiative that wasn't necessary and essentially the government don't really care about it anymore. They don't. They, they, they've probably forgotten why it's there in the first place. They've probably forgotten that it was that there was a time it wasn't in place. And if you kind of go through the list of jobs that were thrown into schools by different agencies in the, because, of, you know, in that manner, schools have kind of been given autonomy to do what they like in terms of SSE. You hear when you go to any course now, oh, you could do that for your SSE. And this could be anything from well-being to, I don't know, <laughs> cooking um, or golfing. Um, anyway, um, even when it comes to initiatives and rules decreed down by the Department of Education, it often ends up in being watered down to autonomy. And that often means abuse of that autonomy. And I'm going to give you an example of how autonomy has been used for abuse, I would suggest. And I'm, I'm using the word abuse very, very strongly here. Um, and I've used this b- before in the podcast around the, the idea of our, our racist education system, which I would uh, claim we have. And the, the example that riles me more than any other is how is the admissions bill. Now, the admissions bill was a flawed um, change. It was supposed to remove the baptism barrier where Catholic children were given priority over other children in their local schools for enrolment. Um, and uh, we've talked about that before. But as part of that, and this is a bit that most people don't, I mean, suppose don't talk about or they should be talking about, but don't talk about, is that schools were ordered by the Department of Education um, to explain in full how children would be accommodated if they opted out of religious instruction or faith formation classes. So if a child was opting out of uh, religion in schools, the school had to publicly publish how they were accommodating these children. Now, the thing about it was, instead of that actually happening, the patron got uh, basically got together, the patrons, the diocese, and they created a sentence basically to, to to essentially bluff over this, that if a child wants to opt out of religion, the parents will have to seek a meeting in writing to discuss it with the principal. Essentially, you're basically um, saying to parents, here's a buffer. Um, we're not going to tell you how we do it. If you want to do it, you have to you have to go to the effort of arranging a meeting with the principal. Imagine uh, a, a family, uh, a recent migrant uh, to the country goes into a school. They may be a particular faith of some sort and all of a sudden their child comes home and blesses themselves. Like, what are you going to do? You, you, you know, you know, people will say, oh, well, I mean, they're they're lucky to be here kind of thing. You get that general racism that happens in Ireland, this underhanded covert racism. They're not going to put a letter in writing uh, without a bit of confidence. And it's really the, the people that are doing this now and have to do this now are, um, it, it, as I said, it's an extra barrier. As I always say, the baptism barrier is not gone uh, from the uh, basically all it's all that's happened is move from outside the school dates gates into the school building and forget all about this. Although, you know, this isn't really about schools being autonomous. It's about the patron, the body this time, they're being autonomous. And when it's been challenged, and it has been challenged by me, by Atheist Ireland and others, the Department of Education state that any complaints about this outrageous disregard for minority families go directly to the school. And the school is then caught between their patron's demands and obviously the, the, the doing the right thing. And essentially in this case, minority, minoritized people lose out as usual. But let's move on, because I know when I talk about religion in this podcast, some of your eyes glaze over because, you know, it doesn't affect you. And um, essentially, you know, silence is golden. Um, I might talk about that um, a bit more because it's been a while since I've uh, talked about it. And it's certainly uh, something I want to discuss again. But the point of all this 
is that all of this autonomy and all of this empowerment and allowing every agency to hand down extra work to schools ends up on the principal's desk. And while these organisations might try and claim that the work is basically uh, delegated to the board and not to the principal, the contract for a principal, which was last updated in 1973, yes, 1973, 50 years ago, basically says that all duties can be delegated to the principal from the board of management. And that's what happens. It's point three of the uh, duties of, uh, of the rules of schools. 1973. The other thing that agencies do is they tell principals to use distributive leadership. Do you like that one? Now, I'm all in favour of distributive leadership when it's genuine. Um, it's all well and good. But when you actually look at di what distributed leadership means in a school context, and its barest definition, it simply means distributing work among all the colleagues. Now, that sounds harsh. Of course, it sounds harsh because we're empowering our staff to take on leadership positions, aren't we, by doing that? Well, that's what we're being told. But no, you know what we're doing? Yeah, we're, the principal is empowering or giving autonomy to his staff to be leaders. Doesn't it sound familiar to what's been expected of principals? We're simply this trickle down effect. Now, I was in the middle of telling a story, wasn't I, before I got absolute diverted as I always do. And anyway, as I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear, I rejected the kind offer of empowerment and I explained that I didn't want to be empowered to make the choice of which children would not receive support because if I really was empowered, all of the children would be supported. And if we lived in a civilised country, that's exactly what would have happened. So thank you very much for the offer of empowering me to decide what children receive no support. But no thank you very much, is what I said. And to which the person um, replied, I'm, I'm concerned that you don't want to be empowered. Well, be concerned away. Because with all of this empowerment, it is absolutely no surprise to me that principals are stepping away from the job. Why would you want to be put in these situations? There is only so much a person can take. And whether it's these kinds of interactions from agencies patronising and gaslighting us to, to like smaller microaggressions of, let's say, for example, when I ring up looking for some sort of technical assistance from a company, then they tell me, oh, well, that, that, that's probably something for your IT team. <laughs> I, I get that all the time. I don't know if you're if you're a principal and you, you look for help and you say, oh, that's probably something for your IT team. You know, they know you don't have an IT team. You know, like they must know primary schools don't have an IT team. I mean, it's bizarre. So what I do now is um, I just basically reply with uh, thank you for your email and the suggestion for my school's IT team to look at this issue. Um, however, as well as being the principal, I am also the IT team as well as the HR team, finance team, psychology and well-being team and everything else in between. Is there any chance you might be able to suggest another solution? Kind regards, Simon. Uh, funnily enough, they rarely reply to that. I will go through the Irish Times article um, a bit, but I, I, to be honest, I don't think this, it's very necessary to go through every word of it because essentially we can summarise it. But to me, the reason why so many principals are quitting the job is because it's become, actually it's become ridiculous. It's not just a hard job, a difficult job. It's a ridiculous job now. An average 16-class urban school in Ireland will have an average of about 50 staff between um, teachers, SNAs, bus escorts, secretarial support, caretaker support, finance support, whatever it might be. At least 50 staff in a 16-class urban school. Smaller schools maybe, uh, maybe a little fewer, but not so much. 
Now, I'm not sure, and maybe there is, but I'm not sure if there are many businesses with 50 staff doing different uh, roles that don't have HR people, that uh, like a department for HR or a separate IT team or, an, or at least one that's outsourced, a separate finance section, a separate administrator and so on. However, the principle of any primary school is expected to be all of these things at the same time. And on top of this, they have to manage and lead the learning and teaching in the school, uphold the ethos of their patron, which in a lot of cases happens to be an ethos they fundamentally disagree with. And even if they fundamentally agree with it, it still adds another layer of work. They have to take the responsibility of a child protection officer, a guard vetting officer, a complaints department, a policy developer, a coordinator of several non-curricular areas, most of which they have no expertise. Speaking of not having expertise, they also have to manage and coordinate complex additional educational needs classes. Also, in many cases, they have to be a building ma buildings maintenance officer, and sometimes they have to project manage an entire building of their place of work. In a small school, they also have to teach 80% of the week. Look, I could go on and on, but you get the idea. And the root of all of this is that principals have not had a change in their job description since 1973, when things were, simply put, much more simple. The Irish Times article profiled two former principals, Kathleen Byrne and John Williams. Kathleen described the job as like running on a treadmill where you keep on running till you run out of steam. She took a secondment to the PDST for four years, that's the training agency for teachers, and when it was time to go back to the principal position, she realised she didn't want to get back on the treadmill. She's now taken up a teaching position in another school, and someone else, I guess, is now on that treadmill. Kathleen talked about working up to 80-hour weeks at times and lamented the disrespect that the Department of Education had with circulars released on Friday evenings and during the summer when she was supposed to be on leave. John Williams spoke about the two best decisions of his career. The best, he said, was taking the job of principalship, but his second best was leaving it. He claims that in the 14 years he was the principal of his school, the job became unrecognisable. I can absolutely relate to that. Both continued to list the multitude of additions to the workload and both agreed that neither of them could do the job they were hired to do, which was leading the teaching and learning as they were so bogged down in other stuff. The research that's out there ultimately backs all that up. The uh, Irish Times article referenced the CPSMA, that's the management body that represents Catholic schools, about 90% of schools, and they claimed that 60% of their members were suffering from a mental health issue. That's nuts, isn't it? Three out of five principals are suffering from a mental health issue. Like, how can they lead a school if they're suffering? from a mental health issue. The National Principals Forum surveyed over a thousand principals and found it to be even worse, with around 75% saying their physical and mental health had suffered at some point in their principal career. So that's an interesting statistic, three quarters. And the IPPN, which hails itself as the only official group representing principals, even had a study done for them, which had similar findings. The troubling thing for me is how all of this was allowed to happen. None of this is new. Ever since I became a principal in 2008, every single year at every single principal conference, the issue of workload has always been the number one concern brought up by principals to the IPPN. The IPPN in recent years has stopped asking its National Council members for feedback from principals, but up until then, that at every meeting, so every meeting I'd go to, I was on the National Council, at every meeting, you'd, uh, you'd go around the, the, every county to say, what are principals saying at the moment? What are the problems? What are the top three problems? And it took place 
um, three times a year. And in the 10 years that I represented my county, principal workload was almost always the number one concern of members and always in the top three concerns. When the IPPN stopped asking their members, and I'm being very generous when I say, to be fair to them, they did keep raising it in the confines of their chicken dinner and prawn cocktail sandwich parties, otherwise known as the Primary Education Forum, a forum that was set up to reduce the workload for school leaders and within its five-year existence has managed to achieve nothing except to delay the new maths curriculum from being rolled out. And even then, I'd struggle to give them credit for that because that credit belongs to a teacher who um, whose name I can't remember to be honest with you but it was a sole uh, work of her that uh, talked about the ridiculousness of that uh, idea and it was dropped quite soon after but in every other aspect and I'm not being ungenerous here they and their partners have failed they have failed and you might wonder why I'm picking out the IPPM mostly here because they weren't the only prefects at the dinner table at the Department of Education. I will get on to the union, don't worry. But the reason I'm giving the IPPN a bit of a harder time, it's like when you've got, I, I kind of talk about this as, do you know, um, there's this thing that in a football team, right, you know, and you're, and you're doing the trainer and the, and the most talented person on your team doesn't play that well. And that's the person the manager picks on the most because, you know, you expect more of them. You don't expect the lad who's down the pub having pints the night before the match and he's not that great anyway and you might Stick him, stick him on for the last five minutes and he makes a mess and you tend to not give them a hard time like that's how I describe maybe the union or something like that but the IPPN are an incredibly talented bunch of people with so much potential and this is why I'm giving them such I have to give them such a hard time in this because I don't, I don't like doing it but they're so, they have so much potential they're such a potentially strong I don't know entity and it's awful to see them floundering having no teeth um, you know, so I suppose I'm maybe trying to put that in context. But the thing I want to say is, well, but the other reason really is because the thing is, both Kathleen and John, they weren't only principals who stepped down. They were their respective county representatives on the Nas IPPN's National Council. They spent years, years trying to advocate for their for themselves and their colleagues, taking up swathes of their personal time. We had to go to these things on weekends. And for what? For what? John had to retire early to get out and Kathleen won't even get to finish her career as a principal. And what did the IPPN say about the two of their finest protégés? And I mean that sincerely. These two people, I, 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 don't, I don't say things lightly and I would say these two were the two of the most talented principals in the country. Uh, and I, I honestly don't say that lightly. I really mean it. What did the IPPN say about them? Well, I'll tell you because I can see it because they pu published it. They said it in a tweet. The report from the IPPN Sustainable Leadership Project will be launched next month and will address the very relevant issues raised in this excellent article. They effectively used it to say that we have a we have a report coming out. Now I'm sorry, I don't think that's good enough. I don't think it's good enough at all. This podcast is called If I Were the Minister for Education, but if I were the IPPN, <laughs> I'd be saying something along the lines of it was with great disappointment that two of IPPN's long-standing and cherished advocates were let down so badly by the Department of Education that they felt they had no choice to not continue in their roles as principals. The IPPN demands systematic change to ensure that we retain the calibre of these excellent school leaders. Now, I've, I, I, I'm just saying that now. I'd love to say more, but that's what I put in a tweet. 
um, I'd sue a lot more in a letter to the Department of Education. Maybe they did. I don't know. I doubt it. But maybe they did. But of course, they didn't do a tweet like that. And do you know why? And I'll tell you why, I think. It's because they wouldn't be allowed back to their prawn sandwiches. And so afraid are these are representative bodies now to be seen to properly criticise the Department of Education. They allow them to have a bit of a rant after the budget or they might let them, you know, after a bad decision by the Department of Education to have a bit of a, a moan or a whinge on their Twitter account or whatever. But they routinely throw their own members under the bus. And this is what I don't like about um, the IPPN, the INT, or any of these places. During, like, this isn't the first time. That, to me, that's throwing them under the bus. I mean, here's another example. During COVID-19, a brave principal, and I'm calling her a brave principal because she was brave, she closed her school down because she saw that the COVID virus was hopping around her school. It was infecting, like, it was nuts. She could see, she was almost see it hopping and knowing where it was going to go next and spreading like, well, a virus and she was dragged through the mill on the uh, on, on media so she was on the radio every five minutes and in effect she was forced to reopen the school and she'll tell you that story herself i don't want to get into more details i know more than i should I don't, than i'm allowed to tell but when the ippn were called on the radio to comment on it did they defend the principal that's the question i'm asking you well you can, they didn't. Of course they didn't. The speaker that was on said, we always follow the direction of public health advice and pretty much more than implied that the principal was wrong to do what she did. Now, I sent a message to someone I know who's very high up in the IPPN at the time and I said, look, I think that, that response was really disappointing. I, I, I hope you contact the particular principal and you know, maybe think to apologise for what you said or at least explain the rationale or so on and blah, 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 blah. And the response I got, and I, this was the response I got, thank you, Simon. That was it. Now, I'm sure there's other examples out there and I really don't like criticising the IPPM because I actually really like them. As I said, it's like the manager, you have this really talented player on your team and you just want them to be the best they can be. And when they're being so lazy or they're just not doing what they should be doing, they're not reaching their potential. It just frustrates you so much. I mean, they have great intentions. And often when I meet them um, and I meet their head, I, I meet the heads of the organization, we get on. We actually get on as people. I really like them. I keep saying this. Um, they will say, they'll say things like, you know, Simon, we share exactly the same thoughts and exactly the same ambitions for education. But we just have different ways of trying to make them happen. But sadly, the thing is, neither of us are, are effective. I'm not effective. I'm not making any changes, but neither are they. And in some ways, I've sympathy for them because at the end of the day, what is the IPPN? And I don't mean this, I, it's, there's no way of making this sound anything but disrespectful other than a support desk and a giant piss up once a year. I mean, that might seem like a really cruel thing to say, but name me one other thing that they do that doesn't fall into either category. You know, that's the thing. And when you see, the thing is, when push comes to shove, someone like me has no bite. I can rant away here. I can say whatever I want publicly thanks to the internet. And it's simple to stonewall what I say because ultimately, what can I really do? I know no one in the IPPN leadership will listen to this podcast because why should they? Why would, why would they bother listening to, any, to, 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 to the likes of me? But the trouble is, the IPPN's in the same situation. They can produce a thousand reports a year, attend a million of those chicken dinners with every minister under the sun. They can answer a billion questions, the Oireachtas committees, on every topic known to education. But at the end of the day, they have no power whatsoever to change the systematic abuse of their members. And when the Department of Education hands over yet another job for principals to do, all they can try and do is make it easier by inventing 
tables and charts and systems like pew, which is lovely in theory. By the way, for those of you who don't know what pew is, um, it is P-I-E-W, which is some framework uh, that is supposed to help you plan. Um, but the reality is, you know, they do one thing well, and that's to bring principles together, to share how awful the job has become. And once a year, they feed them and let them have a dance. And I don't mean that disparagingly. I'd be lost without the IPPN in many ways, which is why I'm being, I suppose, so critical. I just wish they were able to do more. And I really, really wish they'd stop sucking up to the Department of Education and the INTO and the NCSE and the National Parents Council and NADSME and the Teaching Council and the Inspectorate and all the other agencies and instead tell them in no uncertain terms, do your job. But they, I will give them credit for establishing networks of principals who can, at least on the surface, support each other in the face of this constant deluge of workload. I also know now, by the time I record and publish this, the IPPN are in the process of publishing another report on sustainability of the position of the principal. But to be honest, I think we already know what's in it and it simply isn't strong enough. It doesn't issue demands. It says what the problems are and it doesn't really say, it doesn't go further than really kind of saying we, we need to do something about it. But with that, there's no specifics. And one has to ask, if we're losing so many good people, what they're doing ain't enough. If we're losing people like Kathleen and John, they're not doing enough. To have the biggest newspaper feature two of its highly highest vocal former National Council members leave their position says a huge amount to me. Their lack of reaction says even more. It doesn't make me feel good saying that, but it has to be called out and it has to be said. And I'm upset that two, two people I, can, I, I had huge respect for left their position because their representative body didn't do enough for them, any of their representative bodies. However, there are two organisations that do have a bite and they could make a difference, actually. You know, and let's make that three if we include the Department of Education. Let's enter the union of the INTO and the Teaching Council. Now, neither organisation made a comment on the Irish Times article, unsurprisingly, and neither were even referenced in the article, which is even very more, which is very telling, because neither of the former principals felt the need or because the journalists didn't feel they were relevant enough to have anything to say on the matter. However, both organisations can and should be doing more for their school leaders. The trouble is both organisations seem to be hamstrung, like the IPPM, by this mad idea that everyone who sits at the dinner table is a partner with the Department of Education. This, this partnership system is, is ludicrous if you think about it. Think about this partnership um, thing. I mean, I, I remember listening to a, a, a podcast that uh, the former president of the IPPN did um, around this idea of partnership. And they were talking about two donkeys in a, in a, in a, in a field and uh, they're tied together by the neck and there's two bowls of food. And what they do is they, um, they pull against each other to, to get the resources. But they find then that if they actually worked in harmony together, they could both eat from the two bowls. And this is the idea of partnership. Now, I don't think he used the word, I don't think he meant donkeys in a disparaging sense. But I always point out is, who's the farmer? Who's the one filling those buckets? And, and essentially, they decide how much food has been given. And they're not your partner. They're not your partner. They're your boss. They're, the, they're, they're not a partner. They can call you your partner. They're not donkeys. They're farmers. So, you know, when par one partner in a relationship holds all of the power like the farmer and then abuses it, that is not a partnership. That's called an abusive relationship. And that's exactly what's happening. Do you know who the INTO and the Teaching Council should be describing as their partners? Do you know? Well, I'll tell you who. They're members. 
the people who are actually paying the money out of their own wages to be members of both organisations. And the way things look at the moment is that I feel I'm investing in a relationship and basically they're both off having a massive affair. And in a more sinister, and I'm stretching this analogy somewhat, if I stop paying them to be in my in a relationship with me, they'll dump me, even if they give me nothing while in the relationship. And worse, if I don't pay one of them, I won't actually be able to work anymore. They'll take my job away. Jesus, if I was describing a real relationship, I'd be given a helpline number. If we want principals to stay in schools, we need our representative bodies to do better, to do way better. It's really not okay. The Department of Education will argue that they've been active in trying to reduce the workload. In 2019, for example, the National Principals Forum, a lobby group, gave six recommendations to lighten the principal's load. And to be fair, looking at them, the Department of Education has addressed three of those. They were one release day per week for teaching principals, the benchmarking award and admin status for all schools with special classes. So why are principals still stepping down, they might ask? I guess we have to go back to the beginning of this episode. Unfortunately, although the Department of Education have offered these supports, they've been too little too late because they've also added huge workload on top of the principal, which means that none of those supports are actually now balanced adequately with the additional workload that keeps on coming. The unions and the teaching council haven't said stop, and that's probably why. The teaching council should be creating a contract or at least an expectation for principals. The unions should be stopping all these initiatives from coming in that adds additional workload. These days, instead of doing that, they just inform us of the changes. And this year's budget ultimately showed how little the Department of Education cared about school leaders, prompting a scathing view from the IPBN, which was blatantly ignored because nobody really listens to them. However, the INTO didn't react on the subject of school leadership. They haven't threatened any sort of action in support of school leaders. They just allow it to continue. They never stop any initiative from happening. In fact, sometimes they help push through the initiatives that do nothing but add workload to a principal's desk. The prime example being Drihid. The reality is that IPPN need to grow some thorns and start telling the INTO that they need to represent principals and other school leaders. They need also to stop this ridiculous idea of partnership. Good friendships and partnerships have times when things have to be said and a bit of honesty, harsh honesty, has to be unveiled. What's happening now isn't good enough. So what would I do if I were the Minister for Education? Well, I guess I would give back all of the work that's been landed on principles over the last decade and a half. And to do this, I would expand the services that can provide them and scrap the services that have been put in place to curtail them. A good example would be to scrap the NCSE and expand NEPS. I would also scrap any agency that doesn't represent its members anymore, so that's NABSME and NPC would be prime low-hanging fruit. But these are all simplistic solutions that probably wouldn't have a huge impact really. As always, and you're probably sick of me saying this, we need to make systematic changes to the education system. We need to get rid of the patronage layer in the education system. This, as we've discussed, would take away a huge amount of problems. We also need to remove another layer, which is the expectation that eight lovely people will volunteer to manage all the legal responsibilities of schools and this will stop the ridiculous charade that agencies are passing on workloads to boards of management when in reality they're passing them on to principals. Another change is this is a proper centralised funding structure. Principals spend an inordinate amount of time having to raise money to keep their schools open. That needs to stop. The trouble is I could keep going on for ages and ages about what needs to happen but we're coming up to 40 minutes and I don't want to go for over an hour here. But the problem is, it continues anyway unabated. Many of you will remember that John Williams 
from that article had a phrase he used to say every time a new initiative or an extra job was foisted upon schools. He would end his emails giving out about them with the phrase, enough is enough. And maybe that's the place we need to start. Before we start dismantling, we simply need to say stop and pause and then reflect on what can we do to make the job more sustainable. To be fair, we have all the research done, whether that's from the National Principles Forum or the IPPN. All we need now is for the people in charge to take it on for, for, because basically for many more principles, enough will be enough and we'll find ourselves with nobody to fill the principal position. So there you have it. Um, I hope you uh, got something from this episode. If you're a principal, I hope much of this chimed with you. Um, if you're uh, passionate about the IPPN, I'm sorry, I had to be harsh here. I'm, I'm rarely as harsh, uh, but as I said, this is like, I don't know, it's like the manager of a football team uh, having his best player not underperforming and you give them a harder time than your, you know, your player that you're, you're kind of happy enough to get rid of. So, um, I mean, it was with that in mind, if you're if you're someone who isn't a principal or involved in principalship, I mean, I hope it gives you an insight to how things are working in the system and why things are happening the way they are. Um, and if you're someone who says to a principal, we want to empower you or give you autonomy, maybe think about what you're really saying when you're saying that. So that's it uh, for now for this week. I uh, said I hope you got something from it. Uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. All the best. Bye bye.